We are starting a new series in the Psalms for the summer, and thus we are reading in the New Testament as we are preaching in the Old. We're reading out of Romans chapter 1 today. Craig. Paul's epistle to the Romans, the first chapter, verses 16 to 25. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a series uh, through the summer uh, in kind of what's called book one of the Psalms. The, the Psalms are arranged into five different books, kind of by te- uh, theme and topic and, and things like that. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to hit a bunch of different Psalms, all between Psalms 1 and 40. And, and the Psalter, why, why the Psalms are great is because they cover the, the whole range of human emotion and experience. Some are much more directed towards wisdom and wise ways to live, as we'll see in Psalm 1, but others are, are towards affliction and difficulty or praise and thankfulness or all sorts of things and, and we get to see the whole range of human experience and how God speaks to, speaks to us in it. Uh, but we are beginning today in Psalm 1, the first psalm in the Psalter and I'll say lots more about it in a few moments. Before we do, Rebecca is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along in the back middle panel of your bulletin. Rebecca. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. What makes for a happy life? What makes for a happy life? Our American friends to the south have as part of their Declaration of Independence these words, they're probably familiar to many of you, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. The founders of America believed God gave the right to humanity to pursue happiness. And so we have. (laughs) The pursuit of happiness is everywhere around us if you go looking for it. You can see it in the magazine rack at the grocery store. 
On the front cover of each magazine is a picture of something that, that someone, some people believe, consciously or otherwise, this will make me happier. This new recipe, this six pack of abs, beautiful woman, beautiful man, uh, a beautifully organized house. We instinctively think, if, if I had this, if I could be this, I'm sure, I'm sure I would be happier. How often are we right about that? How often have you gotten something you really wanted for a long time and it didn't turn out how you expected? How many of us are frustrated, have been frustrated in our pursuit of happiness? Psalm 1 stands at the door of the whole Psalter and sort of bellows a question at us. Does anyone want to be happy? Most translations begin this psalm with the word blessed as the ESV, what we use here, does. But the Hebrew word underneath that just indicates happiness. Not the transitory happiness of like a chocolate bar, but the profound, lasting happiness that comes from, God, from God's pleasure in you, joy. So I ask again, does anyone want to be happy no matter what life throws at them? Does anyone want enduring joy even when work is rough or the kids are up early or who wants to be content? Now, we're not really a hand-raising church, but if you're kind of raising your hand in your heart, then listen closely to this psalm. Listen closely as God, your maker, speaks to you about this is what makes for a happy and satisfied life. So we'll take this in three parts. We'll talk about the way to happiness, the depiction of a happy life, and the destiny of a happy life, the, the way to happiness. Blessed is the man. Though the psalmist uses a masculine pronoun here, the psalm is addressed to every person. It's a generic pronoun in the psalms. It's not a male way to happiness or a path to blessedness only reserved for men. It's open to everyone. But then right away, the psalm takes a turn. We might have expected a bunch of instructions. Oh, here's, here's some things you need to go do if you want to be blessed. But instead, the psalm tells us what to avoid. The, the psalm sort of begins by saying, blessed are those who distance themselves from evil. And then the psalm warns against walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. A couple observations. Note the physical progression of the instruction. The negative example goes from walking with sinners to standing with them and then finally to sitting with them. The amount of familiarity, the, the amount of time spent is increasing. Notice well the progression of who this hypothetical person is with. At first it's the wicked and then it's with sinners. Those are both relatively similar in like the landscape of the scriptures. But it ends with the scoffers. Scoffers are the most notorious group of sinners in the wisdom literature. They are not those who sort of, ooh, accidentally mess up in sin sometimes. They are the ones furthest from repentance. They are not interested in repentance. They actively doubt. They actively lead other people astray. So the amount of time and familiarity is increasing. The quality of the company is decreasing. And third, look at how each stage is described. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers. Counsel, of course, refers to advice, wisdom giving, directional instruction. We might broadly categorize the counsel of the wicked as the realm of thinking. So God's people, the happy ones, the blessed ones, are to avoid sinful advice, sinful ways of thinking. Next, if you think about the way of sinners, way refers to a trail, a path, how you get from one place to another. If you ask me, what is the way to the parliament buildings from this gymnasium? It's like, well, you go up Keyworth, you make a left, and then the stop sign, you're right, and then a left stops onto, onto Scott, and kind of go that way, you'll see it off in the distance. That's the way to parliament. The way of sinners refers to a manner of life, a way of behaving. If you want to be happy, if you want to feel God's pleasure, you ought to avoid a lifestyle of sin. 
And third, to be in a seat known for scoffing. This refers to a sense of belonging, a sense of identification. When we elect an MP to our parliament, we would say they have a seat in parliament. That's what they get when they win the election. You get a seat. That means you have a place. To be in a seat of a scoffer then doesn't mean, oh, I'm hanging out near other scoffers. It means you have taken on the sense of being a scoffer yourself. So the counsel of the wicked, thinking, the way of sinners, behaving, the seat of scoffers, belonging. If you want to be blessed, if you want the good life, God warns his people against these ways of being. Now still, what does that look like? Can we be more specific? Let me kind of rephrase, let me offer some illustrations to make more sense of the world we inhabit. To resist the counsel of the wicked means at least resisting or carefully filtering the world's advice. And as we talked about at the outset, the magazine rack or the Libby app from, you, from the library, it's, it's offering you all kinds of advice. At best, it's innocuous, it's neutral. It's a good suggestion about meal prep or home decorating or whatever. But, but, but at worst, it's giving you counsel that's going to lead you astray. And, and often this happens pretty subtly. The story embedded in many magazines, it's a story of, of them telling you, this is going to make you happy. It isn't always the text you have to worry about, it's the subtext. For instance, I like the outdoors, camping, hiking, paddling, lots of, lots of you do too. Lots of people move to Ottawa for this reason. I can read a story in Outside Magazine or Explore or some adventure blog, a hundred hikes you have to do before you die. And it's easy to believe that fulfilling travel goals or outdoors goals, oh, that's good, what's gonna make me feel satisfied in life. But that advice is simply flawed or it's at least incomplete. Doing a jaw-dropping hike this summer might not make you happy. You might be miserable. And when it comes to money, when it comes to our free time, when it comes to marriage tips or whatever, it gets even more fraught with danger. You have to be careful about accepting the world's advice. It's not always clear when you cross from hiking tips into uh, more moral and spiritual territory. And again, the problem isn't always with the text. Sometimes it's with the subtext. But this warning about listening to advice and counsel, that's only the first part. You must also be careful about being party to the world's ways, behaving, slipping into line with wherever the world is marching. We just came off LGBTQ Pride Month. After I talked to a number of, a few of you about this, I know it's increasingly difficult in Canada to know, well, what does participation in public life look like when a lot of our events have some sort of pride element to them? How do you be a good employee when your, your work day includes pride-related events? What does it mean to be a student in a public school, a public university? It's really easy to go along. We must be careful, though, the psalm warns about where we are walking. And finally, the psalm says, be careful about the attitudes you are adopting. At some point, a walk in, a long, in any direction long enough will lead to interior change. Involvement breeds commitment. It's hard to avoid, but the happy life, the life blessed by God involves resistance to worldly and sinful ways of thinking, behaving, and belonging. And the end result, if you follow, that, if you follow the psalm, is that you'll be different. You'll be increasingly alien to your neighbors and friends and coworkers. If you stop thinking like them and behaving like them and belonging like them, that's gonna be noticeable. And you know what? It's hard to be different. It takes guts, it takes a lot of courage, it takes a kind of internal fortitude. And where do we get that from? And how do we know, by the way, what constitutes evil ways of, of thinking, behaving, and belonging? Most evil and sin doesn't come dressed up like that. So how do we see it? How do we avoid it? 
Well, the psalmist says, with the word of God. And if you look at verse two, these three negatives have cleared the way for one positive. The happy person's delight is in the law of God. On the law, he meditates day and night. Couple observations. First, it's not drudgery. The blessed person delights in the law. They find it enjoyable. They find it rewarding. And I, look, I understand why sometimes it feels like drudgery to get into the scriptures, but the righteous person is preoccupied with it. Now, how do you develop a taste for the scriptures such that they become a delight? I think it's only acquired through habit. Like developing a taste for fine wine or good coffee or whatever, the first taste is terrible, but over time you can develop a taste for them and you can develop a taste for the scriptures as you get into them. Delight takes time. Lots of days won't feel delightful. But I find, especially as you speak with older Christians who followed Christ for for years and years and decades and decades, that there's a taste they've developed for the Bible. And notice the psalmist isn't talking about bare reading, but meditation. Now meditation, according to the Psalms, doesn't involve cross-legged postures, fancy kinds of humming. I mean, you can just sit however you like. But meditation means, how, how do you find a way to get the scriptures deeper into your head and heart? Well, I propose you think of it like a spice rub. We'll do a little barbecue analogy. It is July after all. You, you, you don't dump a spice rub onto a nice piece of pork and then a moment later, you know, throw it on the barbecue. And with a spice rub, you rub it in, you massage it, you kind of get it, in, you get your hands dirty, you get it into all the nooks and crannies of the meat. So the psalmist is saying, don't just let the Bible wash over you, find ways to press it into your life. And what does that mean? Well, I've heard... I couldn't find the reference, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that one of the ways the Wesley brothers became famous hymn writers and they were so prodigious in their, in their composing is because after daily scripture reading, they'd sit down and they'd try to write a rhyming couplet about whatever they'd just read. Just a couple of lines that, that rhyme, that kind of summarized a chapter or a section of verses, whatever they read that day. Now, do you know what summarizing and writing does? It makes you focus on the content. It makes you kind of, you know, tug it forwards and backwards, try to, try to find the right fit. It makes you read and, and reread. Now, I'm not saying you need to write poetry. I mean, maybe some of you should. But it, what if you had to summarize your scripture reading when, it, when, when you do it as, as, a, as a tweet length? Or if you're trying to explain it to your four-year-old, forcing your brain to process what you've read. That's what meditation looks like. Who wants a happy life? A happy life is distancing yourself from evil while meditating on the scriptures. That process will make you different, distinct, but it will lead towards blessedness from God. Part two, depiction of a blessed life. When I was a child learning to read chapter books, there's this series of abridged classics. Maybe some of you have read it. I would reread and read and reread them. Basically, what they do is they would take Oliver Twist or Treasure Island or some kind of classic, and they'd kind of rewrite it. And the book was laid out so that on one side was the story, and on the other side, on every page, would be a picture. And it made the old classics much more appealing and accessible for a kid. And so perhaps at this point of the psalm, you're wondering, okay, I get the general idea of what you're talking about, but are there any pictures? Is there, can, can, I, can I see something? Is there any way to, to visually understand what a happy life looks like? Psalmist says, got you covered. He gives two word pictures, two depictions, the first of a blessed life and then of a wicked life. In verse three, he is like a tree. Now, grammar nerds, that's technically a simile. If you want to picture a righteous, blessed person, the psalmist says, think of a tree. 
In what ways are they like a tree, you might ask? There's four ways. First, the psalmist says they are planted by streams of water. So we're not talking about a tree out in the desert, not a tree in your backyard, not a tree in the forest. They are a tree planted by a stream. And particularly in the much more arid environment of Israel, water source, much more rare, much more important than they are in Canada. A tree would not have much chance of surviving and for sure thriving unless it had reliable access to water. And water here symbolizes spiritual nourishment from God. So the righteous, happy person does not live a life of random spiritual nourishment, but they are situated in life so there's a steady supply. They're not waiting around for rain to fall from the sky. They have oriented themselves, they've oriented their life so that there's a steady supply of nourishment. Now what does that mean? Well, on one hand, this is a reminder of verse two, the happy person's working diligently on their own to meditate on the law of God. They're not waiting for it to drop randomly on it. They've secured their own access. But more than personal nourishment, a tree planted by streams of water means that this person is actively partaking of the water, of the spiritual nourishment that comes from a good church. See, when you join a small group and faithfully attend, when you make Sunday worship a priority, you're putting yourself next to a stream of living water. It's just flowing by you all the time. It's around. You have a life where you get regular spiritual nourishment. Second, this tree yields its fruit in its season. How can you tell if an apple tree is healthy? Well, you can see if it's producing apples. And you're like, well, it's not the fall yet. How do I know? It's only June. Does it have leaves? Does it have flowers? Is it going through the right steps now so that when the fall comes, there will be apples? Well, the psalmist is saying the exact same thing. How can you tell if it's a happy person, a blessed person? Are they producing spiritual fruit? Are they growing in their patience? Are they growing in their peacefulness? Are they making strides in contentment? It's not always the exact right season to see that sort of very obvious fruit, but are they doing the right things at the right times in the right ways that they will produce what is expected? Third, this tree's leaves do not wither. Now, this is a reference to drought or to difficulties with external circumstances. That sometimes trees don't have enough, they have insufficient root systems or they're too far from the water and when difficulty comes, when the rain isn't falling, they dry up, the leaves wither and fall. Psalmist is saying, no, no, not, not with the righteous. And by the way, it's not that happy, righteous people never suffer a drought, rather they are those who have access to what they need to survive a drought. Which, by the way, corrects a common misconception. We think, well, happy life is one that's free from difficulty. Happiness is when you don't have any, have any dry times or times of struggle, right? Sama says, no, no, not right. A happy life is the one where you have the resources to grow despite difficult external circumstances. The hard times will come. The dryness will come. Are you situated to survive these seasons? And fourth, by way of conclusion to the description of the tree, the psalmist says, in all he does, he prospers. There's a well-roundedness to the blessed life. Not just succeeding in career, not just having a lot of time off. Uh, There's a sense of prosperity in all of life. There's a balance. Often we think, well, if I'm going to be successful in my career, it's going to come at the expense of another thing. Or if I'm going to be successful as a parent, it has to, no, no, the psalmist says there's a balance to it. There's a well-roundedness. And in contrast, the depiction of the wicked is short and it's discouraging. They're not like trees. They're not even like plants. He says they're like chaff, which is the shell of a plant. It's the dry husk left when you've taken away the good parts of a plant. You know, think of a cob of corn. 
You go to your back porch or your, uh, your apartment balcony and you, you peel off all the green stuff and all those little hairs or whatever, all the different layers. And then you take the cob inside and usually you know, boil it or, or cook it for dinner. And what do you do with the outsides? Well, you throw it in your compost, the wind blows away all the little wisps that remain. It's not worth anything. And the psalmist says, this is the picture of the wicked. And by the way, it's a bleak picture. A life of sin, a life of wickedness, a life of scoffing at God leads to an empty life. Spiritually worthless. You won't survive seasons of drought. You won't have steady spiritual sustenance. You won't produce spiritual fruit. You'll just kind of be blown away that the chaff is the opposite of this healthy, productive tree. Now, before we get to part three and the destiny of these blessed ones, let me just point one thing out. Psalm 1 paints the world, paints life, with this big, broad brush. It offers stark choices, stark contrasts. It presents either-or scenarios, black or white. And we know from experience, that's not all how, how life always works. Those who believe go through times of struggle. Those who don't believe, some wicked people we know, they still seem to have a happy, blessed life. What do we make of that? Well, we're not going to make excuses for Psalm 1, but I will say, all of the howevers, all of the buts, all of the, oh, what about, all of the edge cases, that's what the rest of the Psalter's for. <laughs> we'll hear Asaph complain in Psalm 73, the wicked are prospering, God, the righteous are suffering. We'll hear David complain, his enemies all around me, I'm under affliction. There will be time for all of that. So what we ought to say now about Psalm 1 is that life won't always work out the way Psalm 1 describes. Happy life won't always be easier. Sometimes the wicked won't feel like chaff, but will feel like a mighty oak tree. Yet in general, this is how life works, and particularly in the spiritual realm, this is how life works, that spiritual blessing is a stark choice. But we must not pin all of our hopes on this life, lest we be disappointed, lest we lose hope. What we can be sure is that all will be set right when it comes to the destiny of the happy ones. Let's look at part three. We can look at verse five, the destiny of the happy ones. The wicked won't stand when it comes to judgment time. Sinners won't be included in the congregation and the gathering of the righteous. The wicked will perish. Psalm 1 doesn't flinch from unpleasantness. As all great wisdom does, it gives unvarnished truth. You insist on your own way. You want to be a scoffer. In the end, God will judge you for that. Psalm 1 says there's going to be a grand trial and you'll have no justification to offer. By your words and your actions, you'll be judged. And by your words and actions, you'll be condemned. And that judgment is presented in Psalm 1 as inexorable, unchangeable, not delivered by human hands, some human court, but by the hand of God. And it's my duty as a minister of the gospel to urge you, flee the judgment to come. Take your sin seriously. Don't listen to the advice of the world. Don't stand with those who would lead you astray. Don't belong to the places of the earth. Any fleeting pleasure you get won't last. There is judgment to come. Flee from it. And in contrast, something happened to the mic. In contrast to those barely holding on to faith, to those struggling in their fight with sin, hear the good news of verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, to know means to care about. The psalmist does not simply mean that God is vaguely aware of your life. Rather, God is very familiar with how you are doing. He cares about it. He's caught up with every detail of your situation. He knows and he sees it all. 
The reason some of us can be called righteous, or the reason that, that we can be called righteous is not because we've meditated our way to a higher plane, we've worked so hard to, per, to perfect ourselves. The reason that God can address any of us as righteous is because the blood of Jesus Christ has made it so. The reason there is a congregation of the righteous uh, that God knows is because Jesus has made us into his friends and his family. I know this third point has been a little bit tougher. I don't stand with someone in my hand like a weapon, you know, brandishing at anyone who resists God. Someone stands as an offering, stands as an invitation. There is room here for anyone. You want to be a tree? You want to be planted by the stream? You're tired of the counsel of the wicked? You feel as dry and dusty as a corn husk? Come to Jesus. If you want the happy life, the blessed life, the life with God, Jesus is the way into that life. See, ultimately, this, is a, this life is a stark contrast. Life with Jesus or life apart from him, there is no third way. You know, the Psalms aren't written in chronological order. This wasn't the first Psalm composed. They're all out of order, at least with regards to the time they were written. The Psalter's like a songbook. So you have to ask, when they were composing the book, when they were putting this one here and that one there, why is Psalm 1 the doorkeeper? What would you put at the start? Why this Psalm? Why here? I mean, it's not written down, but I'll give you my reason. In its short, succinct, and yes, blunt way, Psalm 1 deals with matters of supreme importance. The Psalm says, clarity begins here. If you're going to deal well with thankfulness and praise, if you're going to understand the depths of your own sin, how to confess and repent well, if you're going to be comforted in all your afflictions and your sorrows, if you're going to deal with enemies and people who are persecuting you, you have to get this right first. Psalm 1 stands at the door and says, let the clarity begin here. And so on this basis, I would urge you to look to Christ. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the Psalter. Thank you for Psalm 1. Thank you for its bluntness. Shakes us out of our, our lethargy. Shakes us out of our, our willingness to sort of let things go and says, you have to make a choice. I pray that you'd open our eyes, open our ears that we might see and hear and believe in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it's in his name we pray, amen.